Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. Making a career in the performing arts is notoriously challenging, but the cream always rises to the top. Cat Stewart's searing performance as the infamous Roberta Williams in the iconic first series of Underbelly planted her into our collective consciousness. Cat received both the 2008 AFI Award for Best Lead Actress and the 2009 Logie Award for Most Outstanding Actress. Whether comedy or drama, the incredible performances and accolades have followed ever since. However, Kat's probably best known for her actor award-winning portrayal of Billy Proudman in the TV phenomena, Offspring. Other TV credits include Mr. and Mrs. Murder, Tangle, No Activity, It's a Date, Jack Irish, Camp, Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries, Newstopia, Supernova, City Homicide, Kick, and Last Man Standing. Feature film credits include West of Sunshine, Sucker, Macbeth, M4J and Little Monsters. Kat's work on stage is also the stuff of legend. She's performed in over 30 productions, spending 10 years as an ensemble member for Melbourne's Red Stitch Theatre and working regularly with the likes of Melbourne Theatre Company. Kat's latest hit TV series is Five Bedrooms, which is produced by Hoodlum. Series two is due out soon on Network 10. Aside from being an all-round lovely human, this is actually an inspiring career change story. Kat completed a degree in marketing and arts and was working as a full-time publicist for Penguin Books. However, she was unable to shake the acting bug for some university theatre she had dabbled in. So she began studying at night after work for three years and eventually got up enough confidence to take the plunge. The rest, as they say, is history. Please welcome to the blank canvas, Kat Stewart. Good morning. Good morning, Lee. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for joining me on The Blank Canvas. Pleasure. (laughs) Look, I was thinking it might be worth telling you what the purpose of the podcast is because it feels like there's a million podcasts out there now, which I understand. It's been a great thing to do during, you know, these COVID times. But Mm. I guess it initially came from just wanting to inspire people to keep creating Keep dreaming despite our dreams being blighted, it seems, from, you know, continual barriers. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, anyone in the arts or anyone living life is used to encountering barriers and overcoming. That's kind of what life seems to be composed of. And when you <laughs> overcome one, you go, "Wee, I did it and I Yay. feel great and you feel exuberant and all the rest of it. But the barriers just seem to be coming thick and fast at the moment. And so... I wanted to chat to some of the inspiring people I've met or I've worked with over the years and hear some of their words of wisdom and how they're coping and how they continue to create and dream. And, you know, you were one of the first people that came to mind because I admire you greatly as an artist and you seem like a really lovely human being. (laughs) Well, let's see how I go, Lee. (laughs) No, I am. I've obviously, we talked about doing this a while ago and we've been trying to find the right 
spot. We hope to do it face-to-face. Um, and I've kept an eye on your guests and I've listened to some of your episodes. And so I'm really chuffed to be to be included in your lineup because you've had some really great conversations with some amazing people. That's cool. Thank you. Yeah, I've been, to be honest, I've been quite amazed that most of the people I've invited have said yes. And I've, I'm not sure if it's just because they've been bored in lockdown and they're like, <laughs> oh, yeah, great, a, com- <laughs> a conversation, or whether they've been, you know, inspired by the concept and its purpose. I don't know. But either way, I'm, you know, I'm enjoying it and I'm honoured to mm-hmm. have, you know, you and many of these others on. <laughs> Oh, great. No, I think it's really good. I think at times like this when you're kind of forced to stop, it's really good to take stock and hear about other people's experiences. I really like hearing, you know, really successful people talk about really terrible <laughs> experiences because in a way, not that I want them to suffer, but um, I, I love hearing that everyone, you know, has adversity and that it's possible to to come out of it and learn something at the other side. So I've really enjoyed listening to the conversations. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. I mean, particularly for kids, not Mm. that the kids are listening to this podcast, but, and I'm saying this to other adults, it's really important Mm. that we keep the dreams alive for our kids' sake Mm. because this is pretty rough on them right now. And if they see that we're giving up on our dreams and that we're, you know, feeling like there is no future worth having, then wow, Mm. we're really, the next generation is in for a world of pain. And I have great faith in human beings' ability to creatively solve their problems and the barriers that come at them. And I think we Mm. can solve anything, even what's happening now. We will solve it. But if we Mm. give up and and think that we can't, then we won't. Yeah. yeah. And by the same token, I think it's easy to be seduced into thinking a life in show business or entertainment or the arts is going to be really glamorous (laughs) and glitzy. And I think it's really important to as well as inspire, also be really honest about what it's like. You're absolutely right. The glamour is really an absolute fraction of the job uh, as an artist, Mm. whether you're an actor, whether you're a singer, whatever it is. The truth is it's it's hard work most of the time. But it seems if there's one thing I've learned over the years, it's the things that have been really hard work that didn't come easy are the things that are the most satisfying. Yeah, yeah, couldn't agree more. Yeah. The other thing I like about your story is you weren't a child star or a teen star or whatever. You had a career. I believe you were a publicist. Yes, yes, yeah. in my early 20s, yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, that's that's cool. That's interesting for people to hear. I'm really always interested in career change stories because I had one of them myself. I had no idea what I wanted to do at school. I was hopeless at school. I hated school. I got out and my parents were like, well, you've got to do something. You can't just go and travel. You have to get a skill. So, really, I just kind of was like the only option was go and do a pre-employment course at TAFE. So I ended up doing like a pre-employment, basically six months full-time of doing a little bit of all the trades, a little bit of bricklaying, a little bit of plumbing, a little bit of carpentry to work out. Yeah, to to work out where your aptitude and interest lay. Well, I was hopeless at all of them. I'm so not a handyman. (laughs) And I'm there with all these guys that were already like kind of wanting to be tradesmen. They were already fixing TVs. They were fixing their cars. They were doing all this. They just weren't able to get an apprenticeship yet. So they were doing this pre-employment course to sort of get a bit more experience and then sort of go up the queue to achieve the apprenticeship of their choice. Well, I was just this clueless guy. (laughs) <laughs> that 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 was I mean I was just hopeless at it. So anyway, I finished my apprenticeship as a radio fitter and mechanic. Wow. Yeah. Did, did that background help you though? Did it kind of give you cuz I mean filmmaking is quite technical. So was that useful? Well, 
I mean, it's kind of a funny story. I got really lucky because the company I ended up getting a job with was the TV production company based inside the Sydney Entertainment Centre. So I was meant to be, you know, and I did, I spent a lot of time soldering leads and, you know, working on equipment and all the rest of it. But as I said, I was hopeless at it. But Mm. I did get to learn a lot about different things in a little video production company that was doing the closed circuit TV. And so I learned a bit of lighting. I learned a bit of sound. Mm. I learned a bit of um, production, a bit of direction. They had a control room and they had multi-camera setups and we used to vision switch Mm. live. And, you know, so I learned a lot and that's where I kind of went, wow. I mean, the the producing and the directing and the storytelling and the, you know, sort of running the team and all of that, that just got me super excited. And I found something that I was passionate about. And then, you know, I went off and did it, but I had to go to tech one day a week for four years Anyway, I don't want to talk. But, but talk it weirdly to, led you there. That's amazing. It, that's right. It weirdly led there. So I guess the, the cool thing in that story is for others is career changes can happen and get busy. Like you get out, you meet people, you do something. It's better than just waiting around for the perfect thing to arrive. It never does. It's like No, it never does. Yeah. Yeah, I, do what's in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. And then you just see opportunities and off you go. So anyway. Back to your career change story. (laughs) So, tell me, what did you do when you came out of school and how did you wind up in publicity? I did marketing and arts at Monash. You know, I did pretty well at school, but I thought I'd do business, but I thought marketing advertising would be the most creative kind of area. So, that's why I did that course. But while I was there, I joined the theatre society at, at Monash and that became what it was about for me. Um, and I took longer than I was meant to to finish my degrees because I was doing so many plays and just loving the social aspect. I sort of found my people, I think. I found my tribe. I've yeah. always loved actors and creative people. Um, so I was just having so much fun. And then I, But I did finish my course and I just, I knew I loved acting by the end of those four or five years, but I didn't think it was a viable career. I didn't know anyone in the business and I knew it was a really insecure profession. So I got a job as a publicist in um, publishing. I worked for Penguin Books um, and I just couldn't budge the desire to act. So I found the course, which was a three-year course done at night. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll work as a publicist during the day and I'll try acting at night. And I hoped it was a phase that I would grow out of. <laughs> Um, And I really enjoyed the publishing. The great thing about working in publishing was I was doing book tours with really interesting people um, and I had to read two or three books a week and I was reading books I wouldn't choose. You know, it might have been on book migration or it might have been on a comedian's memoir or it might have, you know, all sorts of different things. So I was getting really kind of interesting exposure to different creative types and also how media works, you know, how publicity works and how to behave and how not to behave. Um, So it was a really interesting, fertile few years. But at the end of it, I think it was in second year of my drama course, um, I couldn't be in two places at once. I actually hadn't told work I was doing it. Um, And I needed to be at the Adelaide Writers' Festival and I also needed to be on stage at the same time doing a play and I had to make the decision. So that was kind of agonizing just because I crave stability um but I've never looked back and it was you know I don't regret it for a second and and I, I went on and kept doing publicity here and there between in the early days especially when acting was so lean um I kept doing that and so I've always enjoyed that but but acting was really where it was at for me Wow, that's cool. You must have had plenty of people saying you're crazy what are you doing you're going to spend your life out of work all of those 
chestnuts. But it was mainly mainly me saying that oh, to wow. myself. I mean, I was I was really worried about it. Um, and I, you know, there's some people that have just driven by an innate self belief. I'm driven by a lot of self doubt, <laughs> but it means that I work really hard because I do I do think I can fail at any second. You know, every time I take on a job, I think, oh shit, I don't. Oh, I'm swearing. Sorry, Lee. Um, I think. That's all good. Um, Oh, good, good. They'll swear. I'll probably swear quite a bit. <laughs> um, I think, oh, shit, I don't know if I can pull this off. Every character is starting from ground zero. But in a way, that's the greatest thing. It's a, The fear and the trepidation is a respect for the task at hand, and it means you work, work your ass off. And um, I love the challenge of it, and I love collaborating with creative people. I love surprising myself. Um, yeah, it's really... You know, the, the lean times, the quiet times are the challenge, I think. The work is just the best. Yeah. Wow. Well, good move. I'm glad you made the move. You took the right <laughs> choice. I mean, incredibly, you've almost pretty well hardly been out of work. Probably doesn't yeah. feel like that. but <laughs> No, early, early days were very, very lean. And I, that was hard. That was hard going from being super busy, you know, basically working at night and day, just constant adrenaline and then finishing. I worked at the AFI, although then the AFI Awards for a while, well, I finished my course and then I got two jobs straight out of drama school and a really good agent. So I thought I was on my way and then I basically had two years oh, <laughs> where wow. nothing happened. And wow. it was that was really challenging. And all actors know that, you know, it comes in ebbs and flows, but that was that was hard. Um, and that's when I joined Red Stitch Actors Theatre in St Kilda, which was really, uh, really formative. And I was there working off and on for 10 years and that was amazing. It's where I met my husband, Dave, and it's where I kind of, I think was able to start calling myself an actor because I was always working, even if I wasn't. If I was making about two dollars fifty out of it, I was <laughs> I was working and I was learning and I was tackling roles that the free market wouldn't have given me, and I was learning a lot. It was fantastic. Wow, that's a good description. Yeah, that the free market <laughs> wouldn't give you on it like that. <laughs> my mates will give it to me, and I'll give it to myself. But you know, the free market yeah. won't pay me to do it. But hey, you were learning so much. You were staying busy yeah. and. You know, and, and, the, and I was getting better because if yeah. you if you stick with what the free market's giving you, especially in the early days, it'll just go off your headshot. It'll be a bit part. In my case, all my roles early on were um, I don't know. It must be something about my head. I tried to look nice in my headshots, but <laughs> I was always sent for um, prostitutes, drug dealers. Um, you know, people of uh, questionable <laughs> moral <laughs> character. And, you know, morals and, you know, I'm into that. I've learned to embrace that. I've loved playing unhinged and unsavoury characters along the way um, and most interesting. But early on I was quite puzzled by it because, you know, you can probably, you know, the time we've had together, Lee, I'm pretty pretty mild-mannered really. So um, that, was, that was an adjustment but it's ended up being a great thing. Wow. Wow. That's a, that's amazing. The other interesting thing is the publicity definitely seemed to have set you up well to manage that side of things of being a successful actor. Like you seem to kind of, I don't know, I don't think I've ever read a bad word about you. So, you know. Well, I think, look, I was raised by really good people who believe in treating everybody well and having manners and all that sort of stuff. So that basic stuff that, you know, we all pretty much have. But it was really interesting at an early stage um, to be working with famous people and to see, just to get an appreciation that just because someone's interviewing you doesn't mean it's because you're that fascinating. It usually means that there's a publicist working their ass off, making you sound really good so that someone will talk to you. And I, I kind of got an appreciation for how hard other people work to get you 
to a certain point and to, you know, that it really matters if you're 10 minutes late for a radio interview. And it really matters if you're rude to the person who just gave you a cup of coffee or, you know, I, I used to call myself the coat holder because just occasionally, you know, you get someone who was really lovely to you, but as soon as they arrived at the TV station or the radio, they just hand you their coat and you were nobody. You're like, just treat people well, you know? Um, so, yeah, just to kind of understand that you're not that special, you know, you just behave well and treat everyone properly because just because you're in front of the camera or the person that's being spoken to doesn't make you any more important than the person who just made you the coffee or who, who drove you to the interview or whatever it is. I mean, it sounds so obvious, but you'd be amazed. I think you'd know firsthandly that some people, you know, really uh, lose sight of the big picture there. Absolutely. I mean, Kate and I laugh about it sometimes. Like we have great admiration for talented actors. We're in awe of them. I mean, you know, it's a wonderful craft. It's a wonderful skill and it moves us and I love it. But I don't always want to hear what their thoughts are on world peace and everything else. It's like, guys, just do your thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Not every thought you have is interesting. I don't I don't really care how you like your coffee. If we're having coffee, sure, but otherwise I don't need to see the post. Yeah, so I'm not that great at trying to get better because I know it's important, but with social media I'm pretty low key and I probably need to, you know, it's a it's a business model and I should be more proactive on it. But um yeah, I'm not an oversharer by nature. Get on, get off is my ethos with stuff. No, I think you're doing a good job with it. I mean, Kate and I talk about that because we're like a small business, you know, we're continually putting on events yes, every year. and I don't gig. mean to crap on people that do it because, I mean, I follow people who do it well and are interesting and funny and bring something fresh and you feel like you know them and, but yeah, I'm not good at it because I'm, I'm quite reserved, I guess. Look, I think, lucky you, if you've been as busy as you have without having to do it, then I think it's great. I'd prefer to spend a lot less time on my phone. Um, so would Kate. I mean, the things make you crazy, you know, it's not good for us. So I use uh, talking social media or digressing, but yeah, I use it like with a very specific purpose. I've got a lot of friends and family on there and we've got other fans and other people that follow and, yeah. you know, you just try and mix it up. But essentially we have to use it as a promotional tool yeah, and yeah. nobody just wants yeah. to be like marketed to the whole time. So you've got to share some of yourself. You've got to share some personal things. You've got to keep it interesting and all the rest of it. Yeah. I resist the temptation just to mindlessly scroll through all the time. I like check myself and go, okay, I'm going to do that. I have a purpose to do that. The way Kate's dealt with it this year is like she was going crazy in lockdown in Melbourne. Oh, I loved her dance routines. <laughs> That's the thing I enjoy. I follow people who I enjoy and I'm, I'm terrible. You're talking about checking yourself with scrolling. I'm terrible. Like, yeah. listen to me. I don't like sharing that much stuff, but I love <laughs> devouring everybody else. So don't listen to me. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. It's okay. Look, I... You could spend hours talking about social media because as oh, yeah. somebody else said recently, it's like the very best and the very worst thing. But I, I will listen to your wife sing anything she wants. Like I listen to all her clips. I listen to all the way through. Oh, wow. Oh, she's a goddess. I'm such a fan. Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah, she has a, a beautiful way of staying authentic and staying herself no matter what yeah. she's doing. That's kind of what I admire about her most. And so it always comes from purpose for her. It's like she genuinely wants to uplift and communicate to people and she's real. I guess that's what it's about, mm. isn't it? If you're in the mm, moment yeah. and you're delivering it, you're not doing it, I guess, to be famous. And I, and I guess I'm, I'm furiously backpedaling because I don't want to sound like I'm criticising people for sharing because it's just that I'm not that great at it. And I think that's why I like acting. I love the security of exploring other worlds, other lives, other perspectives 
but from the safety of character and I'm not as comfortable being open as myself unless it's with people I know really well but I love enjoying other people's insights so I think that's kind of why acting's always appealed to me and I probably haven't made the shift because during my career social media has obviously opened up and I've always thought that acting gave you the opportunity to kind of be a little bit mysterious I guess I've always thought if you know too much about the actor it's harder to believe them as somebody else and so that's always kind of appealed to me so but I'm gradually kind of having to, you know, face the, the new reality, the new world order. <laughs> no, no, I don't think you need to change, really. I totally agree with that. I think it's one of the things that I love about your work. I'm instantly in and I'm not watching you acting with anything you do. Oh, thanks, Lee. Well, that means a lot because, you know, you know what you're talking about, so it's really nice to hear. <laughs> I, I pretend to. But as, as with everyone, every job, we're like, oh, my God, I'm so out of my depth. I don't know what I'm doing. I love what you said earlier about fear. I mean, fear is such a, a driver, isn't it? I mean, I failed the HSC at school, left school thinking, well, I'm pretty dumb. And ever since, I'm like, same thing. I'm, I'm such a hard worker. I do so much pre-production. I'm like always so like probably overly prepared at times. But it, as it turns out, in our business, it's a great thing because filmmaking is all about preparation. It's an expensive yes. medium. You've got to think it all yes. through and be prepared. Of course, half the time you throw it out and you run with what's happening in the moment. But yes. you need to be able to communicate clearly to a large team of people where we're heading, what we're doing and all the rest of it. So yeah. it's turned out to be a blessing. <laughs> yeah, especially with what you do, Lee. And I think I find for me with performance, the more prepared I am, the more I can let go of it because I know it's there. So you can take detours and you can surprise yourself in the moment because the work's supporting you. So I kind of like knowing my lines when I'm shooting TV. I like learning all my lines the weekend before and I'll look at the things coming up the next day, the night before, but they're there sort of percolating during the weekend and the days leading up. And then that gives you the freedom to forget everything because it's kind of there on a, on a kind of muscle memory level and then you can just kind of be spontaneous and enjoy the surprises. Yeah, lovely. So that's cool. Can I ask a few more questions about your process and approach to yeah. performances? Yeah. Could you give me an insight in how you prepare for each scene? Do you sort of write down what your objective is in that scene or what do you actually do to break down a scene? And because you often shoot out a sequence – what do you do, say, before going in to do that scene? Do you remind yourself, okay, here's my objective, here's what the scene before is, here's what the scene is after? Like, yeah. could you just talk us through that? Well, it kind of, I guess it goes, at the very beginning, um, I try and work out what's making a character tick. So I kind of, I've got an amazing kind of mentor slash guru slash teacher slash legend that I love seeing. I'm going to drop her name. Um, Louise Siverson. She is fabulous. What an oh, actress. She's amazing. So we have this thing where when I get a character, we go in and we don't look at the script. We just talk about the character and the psychology of the character. And I try and think about just where they're coming from. I mean, I've obviously I've read the scripts, but it's just kind of it's kind of like a, a counseling session for the character. I can't really describe the process. She's just an amazing teacher and an amazing artist. And so it's I try and look at it from kind of the inside out and work out kind of what her background is, where she comes from, that can affect kind of voice and accent and that kind of stuff. And then once I've kind of got an essence of what she's like and I've got an idea of what she looks like too, you working with wardrobe and makeup and the director and rehearsal and all that sort of stuff, when it comes down to day-to-day -day preparation, 
For me, it's um, I write a lot of notes when I first get a script and I have a lot of questions for the director and the writers usually. And so that happens a couple of weeks before you shoot with TV, which is kind of what I usually seem to do. And then it's working out what each scene is there for in the circle of the episode. So yeah. sometimes in, for example, Five Bedrooms, which is what I've been shooting most recently, it's five ensemble members and a different character is headlining each episode. We take turns to tell a story. Love so that show, by the way. <laughs> oh, oh, thanks, Leo. It's been so much fun. Yeah. Um, so sometimes you're front and centre and you really you need to drive the story, but sometimes you're really there to support someone else's story. And so you kind of need to know your place just to, you know, not draw focus and not kind of drop the overall ball. So I find read-through is really important for that reason, to kind of know where you fit in and get a sense of where the episode's sitting. Yep. And then it's, I don't think that much. I don't have a really specific process. A lot of it's just intuitive and just letting the lines sit with me for a few days and then just playing on the day then. If the lines are there and you've got actors you trust, so lucky on five bedrooms, they're all gold. We just play. We tend to run the scenes um, before we get on set together. We love doing that and just mucking around, making suggestions, playing. Nice. And then away you go and we've had such great directors. It's fun. So much fun. It's ridiculous how much fun we have. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Hey, um, working with other actors, don't name names, but are there any sort of pet hates and things you love from other actors? You know, Lee, it's such a small industry and, you know, the a-holes don't fly. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, um, there will be exceptions, but for the most part, Australian actors I find are really collegiate and yeah. collaborative and fun and down-to-earth. Um, we're all kind of mucking in together. So uh, my experiences have been pretty amazing. Um, so I just love someone to be open. You know, I want the scene to change because it's with this actor instead of someone else. I want it to be real and surprising and I want every take to be a bit different. Yeah. Yeah, that's the fun part when you're in the sandpit playing. So that's I just want someone who's playful and prepared so that you can play. Um, and, you know, it's very rare that you don't have that experience on an Australian set, I reckon. Yeah, yeah, I agree. On something like Five Bedrooms or Offspring, how many takes do you normally get? Well, I mean, it depends on the director. Um, there are some directors like Emma Freeman would often on Offspring, she'd often shoot the rehearsal. Um, and often if you've, if you've kind of worked out your rough blocking and you've run the lines a few times, that can sometimes be a great thing. Um, uh, not many. <laughs> you don't get many takes. A couple? A couple, yeah, a couple. Yeah. So maybe three for yeah. something that's not complicated. But if it's a really important close-up for an emotional scene, you know, you might get six or seven. But you really do, you have to be prepared. You have to kind of be ready to go when you get on set. You can't be too yeah. too relaxed about it. That's why I think the preparation we were talking about earlier is really important. Absolutely. Like in your studies, did you study, I assume you did, method acting and Meisner's approach and all these other techniques. What did you gravitate to most and do you have a, a type that you would say you use or have you just grabbed from all of them and worked out your own process? Yeah, I think I'm... Uh, I think I've just sort of cherry-picked um, along the way. I've read a lot of books on acting and, I've, you know, I love doing the odd master class, 16th Street, bringing a lot of great people. And I've worked with, you know, Larry Moss and, um, you know, some really great, Ivana Chubbuck, some really great master class sort of teachers. But also, I, look, I don't believe in, I don't believe that you have to experience something firsthand to perform it. Um, I think, you know, a big part of our job is the imagination I played a lot of mothers before I was a mother. You know, I 
I think maybe it's easier for me to do it now, but I don't think it was better or worse before I had kids. Um, so I, I really think you don't have to live something to bring it to life, to be truthful. You just you just have to do the work. And I think um, I'm not really that emotional in my day-to-day life, but I don't have trouble, touch wood, accessing my emotions. Um, I just tend to, if I believe what's happening in this thing, it, it should work. I don't have to think about you know, when my dog died or when I was locked in a cupboard or something. Um, I just believe what we're talking about in the scene. But, you know, whatever works. Yeah. You know, everyone has a different way of doing things. And um, and if I get into trouble, I might use an exercise that I've, I've learned about to get me into a certain emotional place. But, yeah, generally speaking, I just dig deep into the scene. Beautiful. Yeah, I find that as well. Often if something's not clicking, you just kind of look at the words and go, okay, maybe there's something here that – needs rejigging or sometimes it's even a word you don't understand because there's yeah. often different different well there's many different definitions for words yeah yeah and that can be the key and sometimes it's the thing that isn't working once you dig into that it can just open everything up yeah and you might not need to change a word it's just kind of digging into whatever that thing is so yeah, yeah. i mean that kind of stuff's really exciting on the day too i love all that i love yeah you know, opening up the opening up the present yeah yeah beautiful and what about working with actors any kind of pet hates or things you love aside from the obvious uh i just think it's really important to be welcoming so whether you're coming on as a guest on a show or i know i've been in the position of being a guest and i've been on in the position of being you know one of the core cast and i just think it's really important (laughs) this doesn't always happen i've certainly experienced this in my early years when i was doing more guest roles People aren't always as welcoming as they should be. Mm. And uh, I think it's really important that when people come onto a show, they're made to feel welcome and they feel good because they'll do their best work, which means the scene will be better. It just seems really straightforward to me. And I think sometimes people get a little bit, you know, they're tired, they're jaded, they've got a lot of work to do. They're in the middle of a chat with, you know, someone from, you know, camera department or whatever it is, but just make sure actors coming in feel good and safe and know where to sit and have someone to sit with at lunch and all that sort of stuff. I just think that's really, that's something that gives me the, the shits when that doesn't happen, when, when you're not welcomed properly and you don't feel safe. Because if you don't feel safe, you're not going to, you're not going to do good work. Yeah. That would never happen on five bedrooms. Um, I hope, God, I'd be mortified if a guest <laughs> said, oh, I wasn't made to feel welcome because I hope we're welcoming. And, um, but I've certainly been on the receiving end of that in the early days and it makes a big difference. And, you know, you file it away. <laughs> you go, oh, okay. <laughs> Absolutely. What about directors yeah. giving you direction that you can't play or that you can't do, you know, like, I just want it more fun. What, what, <laughs> what do you do? Do you kind of glance at the other actors and go, oh, my God, or what well, do you do? I kind of, I would rather wacky direction than no direction. I just want to know how it's going. So I love directors. You know, I'm not one of those people that's happy to direct myself. I know I'm better when I have a good director. So that's okay. (laughs) I've had a director go, oh, come on, more, more you know, more more crying or more funnier. You know, I've had, I've had, I've been, and, you know, for a moment you might go, oh, God. But then it gives you something. It gives you something to go with. And if you're not precious and you want to make it better and you can laugh at yourself, most of the time it helps, you know, or you can kind of talk to the other actor and try and decode it. Obviously, you know, it's not all directors. You're not going to click with everybody. I'm okay with that. Yeah. The only thing, the only bad thing is when you get out, oh, yeah, that'll do. Yeah. <laughs> That's the worst. Yeah. Because you just feel like you've, you know, you've vomited in the corner and you can't fix <laughs> it. Um, <laughs> but otherwise, no, I'm, I'm, I'm open-minded about, you know, what, the kind of direction I get. It's nice if 
really great directors, I reckon, often make you feel like the direction's your idea. And then afterwards you get to the end of the day and you go, oh, that was good. Uh-huh. <laughs> that empowers you as well yeah. as an actor and you think, oh, you know, they played that really well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, beautiful. That's yeah, you more want to ask questions and guide the person as opposed to bloody sound like you're the one running things. It's like you guys are, are there with your sort of ass out the window doing the thing, so you've got to do it. It's just kind of helping guide you and every act is different with what you need to say. And that's right, Lee. It's that respect for the actor, you know, that, that you're not telling the um, actor when to pick up the glass or, you know, when to when to move or, you know, what action to play, you're treating them as a professional and you're helping make their performance better, you're collaborating. And as long as I think um, directors kind of treat actors not as kind of moving props but as professionals and that, you know, I, I can't think of a time when I've been treated like that for a long time since maybe student films or something where people are really inexperienced but generally speaking, you know, directors, they, they, we all want to make it better. And so working from that premise not too bad. Touch wood. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's a lot of talent in this country, isn't there? And we are a collaborative um, industry. You know, it's like we've got to shoot fast. We don't have big budgets. We've all got to be in it together to actually pull off the schedule. So there isn't room for sort of the squeaky wheel so much in the Australian business, is there? No, no, I think you're right. But usually it comes about down to people want the work to be the best it can be. And that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Before we move off five bedrooms, what's coming in the next season? <laughs> yes. Well, so we got shut down in March in 2020, but then we got to come back and finish the second season three months later. So that's all in the can. And then, yeah, we're, we're waiting to hear on series three, but we won't hear, I don't think, until they air season two. So I think the schedule was completely thrown with COVID. So um, hopefully, hopefully we'll be doing that. Well, yeah, we're planning on doing that this year, but I'm not quite sure when. Fantastic. Let's go back in time to the underbelly yeah. phenomenon. What a oh, blis- yeah. blistering portrayal that was. That was the first time I saw you perform and it was just like, wow, congratulations. Oh, thanks, Lee. Oh, thank you. I'm sure you're sick of talking too much about that, but just give us an insight into that moment in time. It was kind of a weird one because I know it, in Victoria – didn't get released initially, but it got released in other mm. states and it kind of took off mm. and then you're in Melbourne going about your thing. I Just, yeah, tell us about that unusual moment in time. Well, um, in retrospect, it was a pretty amazing experience. I was doing a lot of theatre at the time and I was doing more and more telly, you know, recurring guest roles, but I was flying under the radar. I was earning enough as an actor to support myself, but, you know, making a living as an actor for a few years. And um, it was just such a great opportunity. But at the time, you know, it was another job that I cared about, but I didn't know what an opportunity it was going to be. I didn't know how many episodes I was going to be in. They were so secretive about scripts. Um, I didn't even get to read a script before auditioning. I just got sent two scenes. And I didn't know they were just releasing the scripts before we shot them. And so Roberta just kept turning up and she just had such great things to do. It was just this gem of a role and this outrageous dialogue. I remember we had a a quota for swear words. And so um, in the rewrites, in the amendments, all these um, swear words were being excised from all these other characters. But I don't think Roberta lost a single one. (laughs) They protected my swear words. Ah. And her dialogue was just so outrageous and wonderful and um, she was just such a rich character and and I loved her. You know, I, I even though... You know, I never stand in moral judgment 
Um, and I'm realizing, of course, that she's based on a real person, so I have to be careful. But as a character, I just thought, even though she was deeply flawed and damaged, she had amazing characteristics that uh, that were just glorious to play. And um, yeah, it was it was a great project. And as you said, Lee, it didn't air in my hometown, so it wasn't like all of a sudden. You know, there was a lighting change and my, my career went into a different stage. It wasn't like that at all. I was just, I was working with Sean McCaleb, which was, you know, fabulous on a SBS um, current affairs kind of satire called Newstopia and um, doing theatre on my days off. You know, I was doing that two or three days a week and <clears throat> rehearsing plays and nothing that's changed. It took a long time to tick over, but it was a great experience. Wonderful. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about her and not judging the character it's really interesting, isn't it? You've, you've got someone like that and you think, wow, they're, you know, they're bad, they're evil, they're whatever. Well, they feel and believe they're making the right choices based on the information and the data that they have at hand and what's in front of them. They're like, well, this is the best solution forward for me based on what's happening. Mm. And so that's a really interesting, you've got to play that. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's that thing, it's fatal to judge a character and it comes back to what we were talking about before, Lee, with going into the psychology of the character at the beginning, I remember the research for doing Roberta was really important because even though I, I wasn't allowed to meet her at that point, um, I, I would have loved to have at that point, but I wasn't, um, the producers didn't want me to, which I understand. I was able to do a lot of research on her childhood in particular, just through different court documents and stuff. And that was really enlightening because if you've had the kind of diabolical start to life that she had and the kind of trauma she had and the kind of opportunities or lack of opportunities and the kind of formative experiences, your worldview is different. And um, so I was, yeah, no, I didn't want to sit in judgment. I, I wanted to explore. That's the one of the greatest things about being an actor, I reckon, is um, getting to walk in someone else's shoes and kind of challenge your view of the world and your your codes and um i don't want to condone anything i'm just i just think it's um it's good to have an open mind about people and i think um acting at its best is an opportunity to kind of explore who we are as as humans and there's some great quote i'm probably mangling basically it's impossible to hate a man whose story you know and um if you can understand some where somebody's coming from that goes a long way and we could solve a lot more of our problems if we just kind of try and see the world from other people's point of view or not even see it from their point of view but just try and be a bit more compassionate. So true. Yeah, wow. I could spend an hour just talking about underbelly but I'm <laughs> going to exercise great discipline and move on. <laughs> um, incredible writing, incredible direction, cinematography, just everything was just, you know, at the boil at the same time and it was magic. So... Now, Lee, my kids, are, would you like me to shush them? How are we going? Because I can hear them in the background a bit. No, no, it's cool. It's all right? Okay, great. I mean, it's a good point on, on kids. There's, there's a good question. So, obviously, that changes a lot in a person's mm. world, whether you're a mum or whether you're a dad, and playing such a role, how have your choices changed or not changed since you became a, a parent? I think um, I used to chase the dark a lot. I was really interested in that in my 20s and 30s, particularly when I was doing Red Stitch and we were doing a lot of kind of, um, you know, in-your-face theatre. Um, I remember, you know, one of my one of my roles that really meant a lot to me on on uh, on the Red Stitch stage was this character in a play called Dirty Butterfly where my character hemorrhaged to death on stage 
from being beaten by an abusive partner. Now, I would not go looking for, it was, you know, an amazing experience. And again, one of the situations where your worldview is opened up by exploring a different experience. Um, but I look for the light now. Like I, I've got too much to lose. <laughs> when you, I don't know if you find this, but, you know, with kids, you scary things become scarier because you've got more to lose. You've got, you've got people to protect and worry and care about. So I think um, even if I'm doing dark material, there has to be hope. I didn't care about hope so much in the old days. It was just kind of interesting. Now I'm like, no, I need, I need there to be a note of hope. I, I don't want to just put stuff out there that brings people down. I can explore darkness, but it has to be tempered by some kind of insight that makes the work worthwhile and I, I need to have hope. Yeah, I feel the same way. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I mean, my daughter keeps asking, "Oh, Dad, when can I see your movie Dust Off the Wings?" And I'm just like, "Oh, I don't know whether I don't Ooh. know whether you'll ever be old <laughs> enough." Oh, it's so good though. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see it? Oh yeah, yeah, years ago now, but yeah, oh, I remember oh it really God. clearly. You you were one of the yeah. one of the 100. Oh, surely not. <laughs> Oh, my God. She did see the – I had the trailer on my phone or somewhere. She was about, um, I don't know, maybe about 13 or 14 or something, and it's kind of, you know, mm. warts and all. Um, she saw the trailer and, and she was like, oh, my God. She was uh, she was sort of um, shaken for a few days, but now I think she thinks it's pretty cool. She's 17 and uh, all of that. Yeah, she's, prob- she's probably ready now. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know that I've, I don't know. There's some stuff I won't want my kids to see for a long time. I, my, my eight, well, he's nine now. My nine-year-old during lockdown said, I want to see something you've been in. So we sat down and I was thinking, what can I show him? But the thing that we ended up watching was Mr. and Mrs. Murder, which was a, like a very sort of – weirdly quite a sweet show I did with Sean McAuliffe about um, two crime scene cleaners, forensic cleaners. So there was a murder at the centre of every episode, but it was, you know, you didn't see much blood and they were quite nice people. So we watched the whole series of that and that was fun. So Yeah, it was pretty good. I don't know what else I'd let him see. Yeah, no, that, that was good. It was actually pretty, pretty quirky. It was a pretty unusual combination of genres there, wasn't it? Yeah, it was um, – it was kind of what made it fun for me was, you know, I'd, I'd been working with Sean for a while at that point and um, and he kind of did a pass of every script and he was just, he's just so funny. Um, I, I basically just did it to work with him again and it was, yeah, but it was very sweet had, despite the fact that it had murder. It was a couple that were really happy and enjoyed each other and just loved sleuthing and, um, yeah. yeah, it was fun. That was fun. So I could show that to my eight-year-old. It was yeah, fun. yeah. Cool. And um, how's it kind of the dynamic work with your hubby? He's a talented actor as well and you guys are managed, managing to juggle a couple of careers and kids and all the rest of it. I mean, I imagine he's a hands-on dad a lot of the time yes. and then, you know, he's working and, yeah, it's a juggle. How do you guys manage that? Yeah, probably much like you guys. It's um, I just because of the way it was, I had to be back at work when both kids were, oh, Archie was five weeks old, Gigi was three weeks old. Um, so Dave's, you know, obviously an actor, um, but he's spent a lot of time on set um, on jobs, you know, with with, with babies because I was feeding on set and stuff. So very much a shared effort. In fact, probably in the early days, especially with Archie, my nine-year-old, he was doing more, more hands-on parenting than me. 
he's pretty amazing, um, which I was just, you know, I say he's amazing. He's doing what he should do, but, you know, it, I know it's rare. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's, look, it's pretty chaotic, to be honest with you. When we're both working at once, it all goes to hell. Um, it works better when we take turns. So if he's doing a play or working and I'm working at the same time, we just have to throw some money at some babysitters. But because um, both our mums have gone since Archie was a baby, unfortunately. So it's got trickier. But, um, oh, you know, you just, you just work at it day to day. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. make it go right. How about Offspring? Obviously a massive success and great chemistry with all of the cast, John Waters, Asha Ketty, and, you know, yeah. and on it goes. What a treat that whole journey must have been. It really was, and it was just the gift that kept giving because I'm sort of quite fatalistic. So at the end of each series, with the exception of Series 4 because we were greenlit for two series at once that time, but generally speaking I said goodbye and kind of accepted that that was it because I think that's the only way you can kind of function. Um, you have to assume that each time wasn't that great, wasn't I lucky, and let's see what happens, you know, and you never assume you're going to go again. Um so it just kept going. It was great. And then we had two years off and then we got series six and seven. Um, when we did the pilot, I said yes to that because I really wanted to work with Ash, uh, Asha and um, I'd been working with um, John Edwards and Imogen Banks on a show called Tangle, which had been a magic experience. And they were doing it with a writer who I loved from theatre, Deborah Oswald. So I just said yes. And there wasn't even a script written at that point. So I didn't really know what it was going to be. I just knew I wanted to work with that gang. And uh, it just, it evolved and it was, I reckon it was a bit choppy, a bit ropey in the early days when we were working out what the show was, you know, and it was great that Channel 10 gave us a while to find our feet, but kind of towards the end of the first series, it really kind yeah. of found something and, and it just, um, it evolved and got better and better. Um, it gave me such great opportunities to straddle comedy and drama. You know, it was that it was such a big hearted show that kind of embraced all of that. And um, so as an actor, it was just so much fun. You know, Billy was mad but big-hearted and unpredictable and and, and vicious <laughs> and fiercely loyal and loving as well and um, and damaged and, oh, she was just such a great palette to, to play with. I just loved her. Yeah. Yeah, I love a good dramedy. Like yeah. Like that kind of combo, it rocks my world. I, when it first came out, I'm like, oh, yeah, another hospital drama. I'm really interested mm. in that, not – and then I just watched it and the tone of it was just magic, just worked a treat. Yeah, it was fresh. And I think, you know, what I was saying about it, finding its feet, it's great because in a way you kind of have to go to the edge and make mistakes to work out, you know, to do something fresh. And it wasn't, it wasn't a safe show. It was, you know, it was unusual. Um, you know, all the fantasies and, you know, in the early days we had things getting blown up. Like it was quite odd. Um, but, you know, it really it became something quite unique and it was such a great ensemble. All of the Proudmans, all of the hospital stuff, you know, it was just uh, everyone had their little pocket and the writing was so sharp. Yeah. And working with uber-talented Eddie Perfect. Yes. Yes, who I know you've, you've been chatting to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just he's got too many too many skills. It's, if, I didn't, if I didn't like him so much, I'd hate him, honestly. It's, he's it's, just ridiculous. It's frightening, isn't it? <laughs> it's just, oh, he's just, he's amazing. And he's just... Uh, as you know, just so unpretentious and funny and just great company. And we, we kind of almost had a little spin-off show. We'd, we'd work on the second unit with the Billy and Mick stuff. 
So the main unit would be doing the hospital um, material because that required lots of cameras and that that big set. And we'd go off to Billy and Mick's place with a second unit with a smaller crew. And um, we'd do about three or four days of that, just doing tons of two-handers. Wow. So much fun. It was just, you'd go fast and furiously and it was just great fun. Wow. Yeah. Kate Dennis, what a director too, huh? Oh, yeah. She was a setup director and she did tons of episodes. Oh, she's just... Yeah, I love her. Yeah, and she's kind of done okay yeah, in the yeah. intervening years. Yeah, another super talented, down-to-earth person that's just mm. um, kicked massive goals, hasn't she? Actually, she's yeah. uh, said yes to being on the podcast. We ah! just haven't haven't got around to, you know, kind of lining it all up yet, but I really look oh, forward to that she's one. great. Yeah. Uh, you've got kids. Would you inspire them or encourage them to follow in your footsteps or would you be saying... <laughs> Hey guys, stop! I think uh, <laughs> I don't think there's much you can do about it. That's the thing, um, because even though I talk about you know working with um, fear and doubt, no one was going to stop me. Like I just, if you have to do it, you have to do it. It's not really even a choice. You know, I fought it. I tried to do other things. <laughs> I hoped. I hoped I'd snap out of it. I just think if you, if it's who you are, it's who you are, and um, it's really. Look, I've got a four-year-old and a nine-year-old. My nine-year-old is a compulsive writer. He writes books. He's writing a book, two, at least two books. Wow. Cartoon books or long-form books all the time. It's, I had to wrestle the laptop off him to, 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 to chat to you. He's always writing. That's just who he wow. is. He's a storyteller. And I think he'll go on to – I mean, he's nine. Who knows? But I think he's got that thing. Yeah. And my little girl, um, Gigi, she has about – seven alter egos <laughs> like she's either rosie the kitten or neptune the dog or felicity the old lady or you know she's got all these different characters and you know you don't know who you're going to be chatting to in any given moment so you know god forbid she might but they're really creative little people they're really funny um and i'll just step, try and stay out of the way and yeah. see what they want to do i certainly i wouldn't i wouldn't try and corral them into the business because i think it's yeah even though i love it it's you know we, we know how fraud it can be, but um, they'll just be who they are, I guess. They're very entertaining at home anyway. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, stay out of what the about way. G- what about Gypsy? Uh, What's your position? Oh, look, we've, um, we haven't, she's a natural entertainer type. So um, we haven't had to sort of encourage her. She's kind of wanted to get out and do things. Um, Look, it's sort of one of those things. It's got to be your sort of burning passion that you're just going to do mm. whether you're getting paid or not almost. And mm. if that's mm. if that's the thing, then, you know, you, you, you'll, um, you're going to do it. But certainly if you were, you know, looking to have a comfortable life or make a lot of money, that sort of stuff, well, the chances are you're not going to in this business. So it's got to be something you just love to do and it's your passion. I, that, I mean, yeah. it, it sort of doesn't matter what that is. That's the sort of story of life, isn't it? The, the way to have a happy life, as, you know, many wise people have said, is find what you love doing and What do you that. love and then it's not work. That, yeah. That's right. So, um, you know, I've been fortunate to be able to do that and as have you and sure there's lots of ups and downs and at times you're like oh my yeah. god 
there's got to be something that's easier than this. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, I'm at this point, I'm like, oh, well, it's too. Yeah, I don't know what else I can too, do now. Well, even the, I mean, the podcast was something that was kind of like, okay, wow, well, the, you know, the directing thing, that's kind of over in 2020, you know, maybe never come back again and like, okay, what else can I do? Obviously, Kate is just like a bloody wonder woman and she's just relentlessly mm. creative and productive and you know we're like a basically a production company and a family business and we mm. produce and direct and the lines all blur and as we help each other mm. and it just goes on and on so that's probably always going to be there so I don't think I ever won't be busy but um you know I still like doing things on my own that aren't mm. through the the, the, the prism of Kate. Kate said the funniest thing the other day because I did a podcast. I did something, yeah, and it's with somebody mm. who um, is my age, wonderful director, and mm. I directed, uh, you know, Dust Off the Wings, that film of mine in the 90s, mm. sort of before and a year later he did his first film and he's not, now done about 10 films and TV series and, you know, taken over the world. And um, I finished the podcast and I'm like, Oh God! I've, you know, I was like, God, I feel like I've missed so many opportunities and blah blah blah. And she's like, "You've been, you've been directing essentially an Amaldivar film, Pedro Amaldivar film, starring me for thirty years. You've been <laughs> st- starring Kate Serrano and Gypsy Rogers. Are you crazy?" So it's, and I was like, oh, so great. It, "Yeah, I just cracked up." And I'm like, "You are so, so true." It's like, it's not on IMDb. But I tell you, I've I've made a thirty year feature with my wife. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's so great. Yeah, every every day is you know like full on, and I wouldn't have yeah. it any other way. Sometimes I'll go and do a job, and you know, direct a TV show, or whatever, and I'm like, oh god, this is great. This is so much easier than than directing life at home. <laughs> I find that I feel like with kids, I mean, it's getting easier because of the age they're at now, but um, I'd go to work, you know, especially when you've got toddlers and stuff. It's like, oh, my God, yeah. work is so much easier than being <laughs> home because you can finish a cup of coffee, you can finish a thought, you know. It's Yeah, home is mad, isn't it? But it's, absolutely, it's <laughs> absolutely. Hey, um, we're running out of time, but a, a quick one about theatre. I mean, I couldn't believe yes. how many plays you've done. I got your bio through and I'm like, what? I mean... That's incredible. Um, I, I dug that up for you from my agent, and I um, there are some entries there in theatre that are from like the early nineties before I even went to drama school. So I think it's not quite as okay. epic as it looks. Oh, it's still impressive, and I'm I'm saying impressive. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so many, I mean, so many TV shows, so many incredible TV shows. So I mean, I had a question before I got this. I had a question. Oh, you know, why didn't you go to the US and you know follow that whole thing that lots of Aussie actors have successfully done. And then I, I got this thing mm. through and I'm like, well, that's why, because you actually haven't stopped here. You haven't had to. Well, I, I love the idea of doing international work, but I must say I love that's, – that's something that, that comes up when I'm not working here. My first preference, to be honest, I mean, I would love the money. I mean, obviously you can earn tons more money if you go overseas. But I, I love being close to my family. I'm very close to my, my dad and my, my brothers and their families and stuff, and I've got really close friends. And I love, um, I love the kids having um, continuity with kinder and school, and, um, and I love telling stories 
that are ours. But not to say that I wouldn't, but it's just, yeah, it's, it was never enticing enough. And if, because I came to acting kind of late, I was in, I was, you know, in my thirties when, when Underbelly happened, um, I was kind of too, too old to go over and kind of do the couch surfing thing and go over with, with nothing to the States. Had I had a calling card that was international, I've, I've always been open to it, but, um, but no, I've, I've sort of been happy here and with kids, especially, Unless I had, unless I was going to be, you know, treated like a lady over there with a with a calling card that helped or with a job, um, yeah, it wasn't something I was prepared to really pursue. I did get down to the last couple. I got a couple of deals to do pilots, you know, where they, you do a deal memo and you sign your life away for seven years, and then you know they choose someone else, so it doesn't happen. So I've kind of I've put my hat in the ring for that kind of thing. Like right. I've auditioned from here and got close to a couple of. Um, long-term jobs in the states but they didn't happen for whatever reason and so yeah it's just the way things have worked out but i'm I'm, gonna say especially in the moment i'm so grateful to be in australia because wow how blessed are we right now god we're so lucky we're so lucky so i'm certainly not um i'm really grateful for the run i've had to be honest i don't feel like um i don't feel regret about that it's just kind of the way things have well, so yeah, far. I mean, it's an incredible body of work, as they say. I love that phrase. I've <laughs> wanted to say that um, over the 20 <laughs> podcasts. But, no, it really is. It's wonderful. And it's interesting you mentioned the family. Um, I saw your episode of Who Do You Think You Are? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it was beautiful. It was a beautiful insight, and I got that. I got the, you know, the sense of, yeah, you're a strong family person and you have a lovely family, and, yeah, it makes sense why you haven't sort of – you know, split. Yeah. Well, I think if I'd been younger, when I kind of had some success, maybe it would have been different. But yeah. I just, yeah, I could see the writing on the wall. Yeah, you needed to be, you know, straight from a soap and really young and really hungry. And and by the time, yeah, I just, I don't think it would suit my temperament. But anyway, who knows? Who knows? You know, you never close the door on these things. I might do a Jackie Weaver. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <it laughs> you never ha- know. Yeah, yeah. No, no. It she's, she's caused a lot of trouble. She's given a lot of middle-aged women hope. <laughs> Ah, that's hysterical. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, look, you know, thank you for the wonderful work, the cultural contribution, the entertainment, oh. and, you know, being a great role model too, really. Oh, thanks so much, Lee. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Blank Canvas. Head to imdb.com to get a list of Cat's credits to sort your future viewing list. Series one of Five Bedrooms can be streamed at 10play, that's 10, the number, play.com.au if you're in Australia and look out for series two coming in 2021. Next week's episode features visionary restaurateur and creative entrepreneur, Maurice Terzini, best known for establishing several truly iconic Australian dining venues, Iceberg's Dining Room and Bar on Bondi Beach, and the legendary Melbourne Wine Room. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on whatever platform you're on. I'd also love to hear your ideas for future guests, so don't hesitate to send them through. You can contact me via the website, theblankcanvaspodcast.com.au, or through the show notes. Until next week, live large. Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Milovich production.